0: On Blood on Gold Mountain. True to his word, Yo Hing brought Yut Ho to her legal guayla marriage ceremony with Li Yong. Between a hanged god and a goddess of mercy, Yut Ho and Li Yong were married. After the quick ceremony, the young couple took refuge at a safe house, the residence of Dr. Tong and his wife, Tong Yo. However, Samyuan soon discovered their whereabouts and had Yut Ho arrested. In the trial that followed, Yohing and Samyuen faced off in more ways than one. Yohing's cleverness prevailed against Samyuen's brute force, and the young couple were released, but Samyuen did not take defeat lightly. His parting words would prove fateful. This isn't over.
1: A Choi leaned against a patch of wall, staring across the alley at a small, nondescript adobe house. He was sore from riding, and he had not slept for several days, but he could feel the strength surging through his tall, broad frame. His eyes were sharp and wakeful under the brim of his black felt hat. The morning was cool, with traces of sea mist lingering in the air. Ah Achoy had on a great black overcoat, and his hands were thrust deep into its pockets. His right hand was folded loosely around the handle of his Colt revolver. In his left, he gripped a crumpled sheet of paper. The paper was a letter from Sam Yuan. After days of incessant handling on the ride from San Francisco, it was no longer legible, but Ah Choi had committed its contents to memory. The letter was addressed to Condor, Ah Choy's trade name, And it read, Your sister, Yat Ho, has been abducted by the vagabond Yo Hing. Come to Los Angeles and deal with her abductor, so that she can be rescued and reunited with her rightful husband. When your sister married my associate, Hing Sing, you were unable to pay her dowry. Instead, you swore on your honor as a soldier that you would render my company a service. Now the time has come to make good on your debt. Come to Los Angeles and dispose of Yohing. I will personally see to all your expenses. Captain Sam Yuan, Ziyup Division, Taiping Army. There was a burst of muffled laughter from the house which Ah Choi was watching. Then the door opened. And Yo Heng stepped out into the street. A ah Choi pushed off from the wall. He walked slowly on a diagonal pathway that would lead him past his target, easing his revolver out of his pocket as he went. Something was wrong, though. Ah Choi was a head taller than anyone else in the street, and his overcoat was boiled wool. Common in rainy San Francisco, but not in arid Los Angeles. Yo Hing was looking at him, eyes narrowed. Ah Choi was ten paces away, at a 45 degree angle from his quarry. It was too far to be sure. Too many things could go wrong with that pivot or the shot from the hip. If he could just get a little closer, stop right there. Said Yoheng in a deep, resonant voice. A Choi raised his pistol and fired. It was a good shot. Straight and true, it pierced the spot where Yoheng's heart had been a moment earlier. But the bastard was already moving. The bullet tore a strip from his guayla jacket as he dashed back into the adobe house. Ah Choi was close behind, ducking beneath the low header and firing twice before his eyes had time to adjust. He heard something smash and shoved somebody out of the way as he plunged further into the house, but it was no use. Everything was too dark, too small, and too unfamiliar. By the time Ah Choi found his way to the back door, Yo Hing was gone. As he made his way towards Sam Samyuan's Niyang store, Ah Choi fought down his impatience. He was angry with himself for missing the shot and concerned for Yat Ho's safety. He didn't notice the two Gwila policemen sidling towards him until they were only a few paces away. Nice day out, said one of them, a thin man with yellow hair and a misshapen nose. Good thing the heat is finally broke. Don't you think? I wouldn't know, said Achoy. I just got into town. The other policeman stepped forward. He was almost Achoy's height, with a large belly and fat, hairy jowls. The thing is, he said in a gravelly drawl, is that you match a description from the gunfight that just happened on Calle de los Negros. Chinaman, long hair, black coat, about six feet and four. Stranger in these parts. Witnesses say you took a pot shot at one of our valued... well, I guess they ain't exactly citizens, are they, Harris? He looked at the yellow-haired man, and the two of them chuckled. Ah, yes, Achoy spoke in his best guayla, and looked down his nose at the two men were obviously wary of him, despite their insolent demeanor. I had a little disagreement with your friend Yo-Hing over some personal matters. He ain't our friend, said the fat policeman. We don't make friends with your kind. Still, I think you'd best come down to the station with us, so we can sort this all out. Very well. Achoy gestured for them to lead the way. The man named Harris reached out to take Achoy's arm. That won't be necessary, said Achoy dryly. I know perfectly well that the simplest way out of this is to pay the fine. In fact, if you want to settle this quickly, send somebody to notify Sam Yuen that I've been detained. He'll see to it promptly. The two men glanced at each other significantly. Then the fat one looked up at A ah Choi. Much obliged, he grunted. What name should we give when we notify Sam Yuan that you've been arrested? Ah Choy smiled, showing his teeth. You can call me Condor. Sam Yuan stared incredulously at the two policemen. $3,000? Hing Sing, who was translating, looked like he would rather be anywhere but here, in the Spartan back room of the Ninyang store. The two policemen looked at each other nervously. Begging your pardon, Sam, said Harris, but it weren't us as decided the amount, Judge Sepulveda, give me that. Samyuan leaned over his desk and snatched the court order out of Harris's hand. He decided not to break one of the Guala's fingers in the same motion. The last thing he needed was another out-of-court settlement with this ugly yellow bastard. Samyuan handed Hing-Sing the document to read, but he wasn't really in any doubt about its contents. That fool Sepulveda is in Yo Hing's pocket, he growled at the policeman. For all I know, you are as well. Do you think I'm an idiot? I know Sepulveda has a stake in the patent medicine business, and I'm sure he's come to a nice little agreement with yo Drive me out of business with inflated legal fees so that two of them can corner the opium market. Is that what they're after? The two policemen were silent. Well, said Samyon, standing up, If they think this court order will change anything, they're sadly mistaken. Tell Sepulveda to release the prisoner at once. He can come here to collect this exorbitant bond of his any time he likes, but he'll have to do it in person. I'm not fool enough to hand over a sum that size to the likes of you. Come on, Heng Seng. Samyan turned to go but Hing Sing made no move to follow. He was looking back and forth between his boss and the court order, chewing his lip. The fat policeman, whose name was Jesus Bilderan, cleared his throat. Problem is, he said, gruffly, is that Judge Sepulveda says he won't release the prisoner till he's got assurance that you can pay the bail. Hing Sing's murmured translations hung in the air ubiquitous and unobtrusive as a shadow. Sam Yuan turned to face Bilderan very slowly. I just told you I'd pay, he hissed. There was a warm, vibrating sensation in the palms of his hands. He took a step forward. Bilderan took an involuntary step back. It's in the court order, he blurted out. Sam Yuan rounded on Hing Seng. What does it say? He snarled. Hing Seng gulped. Well, um, it says that the judge doesn't. Um. That is to say, he's asking these men here to verify that you actually. Well, <clears throat> that you actually have the funds to. Billaran in, interrupted Sam Yuan. See that box with the iron fittings on the floor there? I guess the wall. The fat policeman nodded. Bring it over here. Bilgeran hesitated, unwilling to take orders from a Chinaman. But curiosity prevailed, and he shambled over to the box. He bent down, grabbed it by its iron handles, and gave an almighty heave. The box didn't budge. The other three men watched for a minute as Bilderan wrestled ineffectually with the box. Eventually, he straightened up, sweated and holding his lower back. Harris, he grunted, give me a hand. Each of them grabbed a handle and with some effort they managed to drag the box over to Sam Yuan. He took a large black key out of his pocket, unlocked the lid and kicked it open. The box was full of metal objects. Iron ingots were stacked up beside long strings of Chinese coins. A bundle of inlaid daggers lay across the top of one end, resplendent in sheaths of sharkskin and ivory. However, it was the contents of the other end that made the policemen catch their breath and stare. A large leather sack, open at the top, and full to bursting with gold. As you can see, said Samyon. I have more than $3,000 at my disposal. It was true. He had a lot more. Samyon kicked the lid shut and locked the box. Then he reached down, grabbed one of the handles in his left hand and dragged the box back to its place against the wall. Now, he said, turning to face the policeman with an expression of satisfied contempt, run along and give my regards to Judge Sepulveda. After Achoy ah was released from jail, the first thing he did was to go looking for something decent to eat. He found a small, no frills noodle place a few doors down from the boarding house where Sam Yuan had reserved space for A ah Choi and his horse. The noodles were good cheap dried rice sticks with equally cheap dried bean curd, but well seasoned with thin sliced carrot, a little minced pork, and a few rounds of fresh scallion. It didn't quite compare to the food in San Francisco. Los Angeles was 10 long, hot miles from the coast, so fresh seafood was a practical impossibility. Even so, Achoy was satisfied. It was good, decent food, a thousand times better than the hardtack and salt beef he had eaten in the saddle on his long southward ride. Achoy paid with a 25-cent piece and went out into the street. The morning had been cool and the jail even more so, but now it was late afternoon and the sun beat down vengefully as if to make up for lost time. Achoy decided to go check on his horse. She was stabled around the back of the boarding house, a big black mare with a reddish mane and gentle brown eyes. She was brave, clever, and fast as lightning. Achoy loved her more than anything else in the world, with the possible exception of his sister, Yat-Ho. Maria, murmured Achoy, smoothing her forelock and patting her glossy neck. He had named her after Mary, his lost love, the beautiful blue-eyed widow, who had been killed for daring to share her life with a Chinaman. Are they treating you well here? Giving you enough water? Looks like you got a nice grooming. That's good. Maria nuzzled his hand and gave a deep, contented sigh. I hope Yet Ho is all right, ah choi told her. Then he too sighed. We have it pretty rough, don't we? All this running and fighting, every day of our lives. Sometimes I wonder what it would be like to just be at peace. Maria's ears suddenly pricked up. Achoy turned, reaching for his revolver, but it was too late. He felt a tremendous pressure on the side of his neck. The world seemed to flicker and grow thin as he sank to the ground. Maria screamed and tried to lash out with her front hooves, but the low stall restrained her as Yo-Hing stepped into view, a smoking revolver in his hand. Who are you? he demanded. His voice was so deep it seemed to shake the very earth. ah Choi tried to respond, to hurl a final indictment against his foe. But speech was beyond him. The world had grown too heavy. Never mind, said johann It doesn't matter now. Whatever Samyuan told you, it was a lie. The girl is fine. In fact, she's doing very well. She took a steamship to San Francisco four days ago with her husband. Not Hing Sing, of course. Li Yong, her real husband, the one she loves. Yat Ho, thought Ah Choi. Fine, ship, San Francisco, husband, love. He felt a weight lifting from his chest. All the weight of the world lifting gently away. yo looked around. Then he slipped his revolver into his pocket. When he withdrew his hand, he was holding a single bronze coin, engraved with the insignia of the Taiping Rebellion. He bent down and enfolded it in A Choi's left hand. See you on the other side he said quietly. Then he stood up and was gone. Maria gave a wicker and leaned heavily against the gate of her stall. She reached down with her long neck and nuzzled Achoy's face. Then she turned her head to gaze at him from one side, then the other, but the eyes that Achoy was looking into were far away from that place. And they were not brown, they were blue. Officer Emil Harris of the Los Angeles Police turned around just in time to see his partner disappear around the corner into Calle de los Negros. Where do you think you're going, Bill Crime scene is this way. Bill did not answer. Harris swore and hurried to catch up. Beads of sweat showed on the back of Bilderan's sunburned neck as he strode purposefully down the alley. Harris had to hurry to keep up, even though he was just as tall as Bilderan and half his weight. A small crowd had gathered in front of the Cornell building. Its long facade housed the doors to a dozen or so Chinese shops, including Sam Yuan's Nin Yang store there were no Chinamen present. Harris recognized a handful of drifters and confidence men from the Anglo and Mexican communities, along with local butcher Refugio Botello and Robert Thompson, owner of the saloon in which Harris and Billeran had stopped for a drink on their way to see Judge Sepulveda. Harris also saw Adolfo Salas, a fellow policeman, and hurried to meet him as Bilderand pushed to the front of the crowd. "'What's going on?' asked Harris in an undertone. Celis gave him a hard look. "'I'm the one who should be asking you. These men say you and Bilderand were in Thompson's saloon earlier, telling anyone who would listen that the Chinamen in this here store are sitting on a chest of gold.' Harris stared at Celis. "'It was true.' He and Bilderan had discussed the matter over whiskey in the bar. They hadn't been telling anyone who would listen, not on purpose at least, but they hadn't been keeping their voices down either. Salis grabbed Harris by the arm and hissed in his ear. You two idiots have stirred up a lot of trouble. You know as well as I do that there's no legal penalty for stealing from Chinamen. Now all these good-for-nothing fools are here with their guns. Soon enough, one of them will find his cojones and blast his way into the store. There's people living in the Cornell, Harris. Families. Children. Do you think these men will stop looting once they've got their hands on whatever gold might be in that store? We're about to have a mass robbery. Maybe even a bloodbath on our hands. All because of your blabbing mouth. Harris opened his mouth to object. After all, the people inside the Cornell building were only Chinamen. But at that moment, Builderan leapt onto the covered gallery in front of the Nin store. On his face was an unsettling, overexcited expression, and in his hand was his pistol, cocked and loaded. His first shot buried itself in the shop's closed door. You damn fool! Harrison Salis sprang towards him, but they were too late. Bilderan fired again, and this time his bullet struck the door's rusty mechanism, tearing it loose from the frame. The fat man shoved his way inside. There were three muffled shots, followed by a long moment of silence. Harrison Salis leapt up onto the gallery. They hesitated looking at each other. As Harris reached out to push the door open, something slammed into it from the inside. Harris gave a yelp and leapt backwards, nearly falling off the edge of the walkway. There was a desperate, scrabbling noise, and then Builderan burst out into the street, doubled over like a wounded boar. He was drenched in blood, which was pouring from a ragged wound in his right shoulder. It streamed over his body and down into the dust from the tips of his nerveless fingers. His revolver was nowhere to be seen. Bilderand staggered to a halt in the middle of the street. Harris ran to him. Can't you see this man's bleeding? He screamed, tearing off his belt and looping it into a crude tourniquet. Somebody get a medical man, quick! Bilderand looked at Harris. His eyes were bleary, and it seemed to require effort for him to recognize his partner. His face was very pale. Samuel, he said in a voice barely louder than a whisper. Then he pitched forward, landing in a crumpled heap face down in the dust. The men in the street gathered around Billeraine's inert form, shouting a chorus of unhelpful instructions as Harris worked to staunch the bleeding. Thankfully, there was no exit wound. The bullet had lodged in the bone of Billeraine's upper arm. Harris pulled the belt tight around the fat, clammy shoulder and tried to apply pressure, but the blood kept coming in great, dark pulses that grew perceptibly slower over time. In the end... He gave it up and pulled the belt even tighter so that the bleeding slowed to an ooze. He hoped the medical man would arrive soon. It would be only a matter of minutes before the blood-starved arm began to gangrene. Officer Celis was standing with his back against the Ninyang storefront, shouting through the door. Sam Yuan or whoever is in there! I know you think that you're just defending your store, but you've injured an officer of the law, and that's a serious offense. Now, I want you to come out here with your hands in the air, and I promise that you won't be harmed. We'll just take you on down to the courthouse, and then once Bilderan recovers, maybe we can work out some sort of plea deal that will make everyone happy. Can you hear me in there? Does that sound all right to you? There was a silence. Then, from the darkness inside the store, there came a sound that made Harris's heart cringe and his stomach turn. It was a sound like two bone saws grinding together, teeth on teeth, steel on steel. Sam Yuan's laughter. The voice from inside the store was harsh and proud rendered all the more savage by the speaker's broken english fat guila stupid guila fat guila get hurt go home money is gone gold is take away smart guila go home stupid guila stay fight never home again Stupid guala, come in. Go to hell. That ain't Sam Yuen, thought Harris. That Chinaman in there is the devil himself. Get out of my way, sellus Someone shoved the lawman roughly away from the door. It was the saloon owner, Robert Thompson. Tall and rangy, with an unkempt dirty blonde beard... He hesitated for a moment in front of the half-open door with his revolver in his hand. Are you crazy? shouted Salus. Didn't you see what just happened? Thompson wasn't listening. He drew himself up, kicked the door wide, and plunged in. The fiery October sun was sinking slowly behind the rooftops across from the Coronel building. Its rays caught Thompson's broad, flannel-clad back as he leapt through the door. Harris realized that from inside the store, the man would appear as a silhouette, black, against the backdrop of blazing light. There was a single, ear-splitting crack. The center of Thompson's back erupted in a fountain of blood and shredded flesh. Harris felt the shockwave as the bullet whizzed by his ear and slammed into the building behind him. Thompson froze, rooted to the spot, and then something inside the store struck him so hard that he was lifted clean off the ground and tossed like a rag doll over the gallery and into the street. He hit the ground with a dull thud and came to rest spread-eagled his empty eyes staring up at the hell-colored sky. For a moment, nobody moved. A cool breeze blew down the alley, catching at the dust cloud kicked up by the dead man's fall. Far away, as if in another world, Harris could hear the bustle of Los Angeles, Frontier Town, wrapping up business for the night. Then the door of the Nin Young store slammed shut, and there was a terrific scraping noise from within, as if something impossibly heavy was being dragged across the floor. A barricade, thought Harris. It hardly seemed necessary. Harris was no coward, and he was a lawman who had just witnessed a murder, but nothing was going to make him go anywhere near that door. One of the gold-seeking ruffians had bent over Thompson's body. Now he straightened up. "'He's dead,' he pronounced, as if anyone present could have been in doubt. "'That Chinaman killed Bob Thompson!' All around, people began to take up the call. "'That Chinaman killed Bob Thompson!' Some of the men fired a few rounds at the facade of the Cornell building, while others took off running down the various streets that led away from the square. That Chinaman killed Bob Thompson, they shouted. That Chinaman! Harris looked at Bilderan, who was now being laboriously bundled onto a canvas stretcher by two medical men. Then he looked at Thompson's body and thought of the gold he had seen that morning. He recalled the taste of whiskey and the excitement he had felt discussing the gold in Thompson's saloon. Then he thought of the way the barkeep had stood by, listening. Not the Chinaman, he thought, gazing at the dull inferno reflected in the dead man's fast drying eyes. The devil. Yo-Hing sat at the bar in Thompson's saloon and sipped his whiskey. He was waiting for Bob Thompson, but the proprietor failed to appear. Instead, his wife Rosario was pouring for the laconic handful of drinkers scattered throughout the establishment's interior. She was a commanding woman, short and curvy with masses of wavy black hair. Every so often, she would squeeze through a narrow door behind the bar and bustle up a flight of stairs to check on the children in the apartment above. The Thompsons kept their best liquor under lock and key and a glass-fronted case behind the bar. Yo-Hing, sitting opposite the case, could see the room reflected in its polished surface. He watched as the saloon's double doors swung open and a group of disheveled men crowded in. Their leader was a young fellow in a bowler hat who looked vaguely familiar. He marched right up to Rosario de Thompson, and the two of them stood facing each other in the middle of the room. "'Your husband is dead,' said the young man, without removing his hat. Rosario looked hard at him. Then she looked at the group of dusty, panting men who stood before her, blocking the light from the entrance. How? she asked. It was the Chinamen did it, said the young man bitterly. The Chinamen are killing white men by the wholesale down at the Cornell Building. The room was filled with a chorus of angry shouts, and Joheng felt his jaw tighten. This was an interesting... Development. I want to see him, said Rosario. Her voice was clear, but she could not keep it from trembling slightly. The young man did not answer. He was staring at Johan's back with an extremely ugly expression. The Chinaman, he repeated, almost under his breath, He advanced silently towards the bar, picking up a stool as he went and lifting it in the air. Yo-Hing watched his reflection in the glass and waited. The guala swung the stool in a high arc, aiming for the back of Yo-Hing's head. At the last moment, Yo-Hing twisted aside and the stool came down on the bar with a crash. Yo-Hing seized it and jerked it to his right, so the guaylo's arm was nearly wrenched out of its socket. As his assailant staggered back, yo looked around, just in time to duck beneath a brick which sailed over the bar and smashed into the glass-covered liquor cabinet. The crowd of men was advancing, and yo could see more guaylo in the street outside. With a great sweep of his arms, he hurled the bar stool towards them at chest level. Then he vaulted over the bar, tore open the door to Thompson's apartment, and took the stairs, three at a time. Fortunately for yo he had been in the apartment before. This would have been news to Bob Thompson, but Thompson was dead, and it was the ill-gotten knowledge of his apartment's floor plan that saved yo life he dashed through the central corridor, then kicked down the door to the Thompson's bedroom as his pursuers thundered up the stairs. There was a big window at the foot of the bed which looked out over a narrow back alley. On the opposite side, the roof of a row house began some eight feet away and three feet below. Joheng unlatched the window and threw the pane and shutters wide Then he stepped up onto the sill, balanced for a moment, and jumped. The sun had finally gone, and the sky overhead was a star-pricked dome of deep violet, stretching from the northern to the southern mountains, from the eastern desert to the sea. For a moment, Yoheng hung, suspended between heaven and earth, his coat streaming behind him, like a comet's tail. Then his boots hit tar paper, and he took off running, twisting around to fire two warning shots towards the window behind him. His pursuers howled in alarm and dived for cover. After a minute, they reappeared and one of them fired around in Yoheng's direction, but none of them attempted the jump. There would be easier Chinamen to catch. The row house was a long building that stretched half the length of Calle de los Negros. Yohing made his way along its roof, heading for the Cornell building. He slowed to a walk once he was sure nobody was following him. He reloaded his pistol from the box of shells he kept in his coat pocket and peered down into Calle de los Negros. It was eerily quiet. Not a soul was in sight. As he drew near the coronel, Jo hing gradually became aware of a rumbling, seething noise like the suck of water through tidal caves back home. As the noise grew louder, he cocked his pistol and sank down into a crouch. Then, very slowly so as not to attract attention, he crawled to the edge of the roof and looked out over the square. The Gwaila were out in force tonight. There must have been 500 of them, more than twice the population of Chinatown. They were holding torches, waving pistols, rifles, and other shooter weapons. Yo Hing heard the words Chinos and Chinamen being shouted again and again. Someone near the front of the crowd was louder than the rest. Come on out, you dirty Chinaman! He howled in a high nasal voice. Come and see what us white men are really made of! One of the doors in the Cornell's long facade swung open, and a young woman stepped out with her hands in the air. Immediately, a volley of shots rang out. The woman lurched and half fell clutching her upper thigh then a hand reached through the door and dragged her back inside the door slammed to with a bang that seemed small and pointless after the deafening gunfire that's right you dirty stinking china bitches screamed the high voiced man first you took our gold digging it out of American soil and sluicing it out of American rivers. Then you took our jobs with your seven day work week and your cheap labor. Now that you've got yourself some guns you want to take our place and shoot us down in the street like we was Indians or or Chinamen. Well, you know what? We're not going to take it. The crowd surged in the darkness, the flames of their torches bobbing like ghost lanterns in an unquiet sea. Then, all of a sudden, they parted in the center to reveal a group of men hurrying towards the coronel with ladders under their arms. They slammed the ladders into place against the covered gallery and swarmed up onto the roof. Some of the rioters nearly fell as they tried to climb with rifles and torches in their hands. Yoheng watched them from his perch on the opposite side of the square. Then there was a noise down in the alley, and Yoheng whirled around, steadying his pistol with both hands. Four horsemen were cantering down Calle de los Negros. As they drew nearer, Joheng recognized their leader. It was Jose Cristobal Aguilar, mayor of Los Angeles. The riders pulled up sharply when they were still some 20 feet from the square, close enough to see what was going on, but far enough back to escape the mob's notice. The mayor's three companions all spoke at once. Nierda, said the first one. Madre de Dios, said the second one. Well, I'll be damned, said the third. Aguilar himself didn't say anything at all. He just pointed. Refugio Botello, the local butcher, was standing on the Cornell roof with an axe in his hand. yo was a man of the world, but even so he felt a slight sense of betrayal. He knew Botello. They had drunk mezcal and broken bread together, not once, but many times. Botello gave Yoheng special prices, and Yoheng used his influence with the Anglo cattlemen to keep them from gouging the Mexican Botello at market. How could this man harbor a grievance against Chinamen? There could be no simple answer. Yoheng looked at the mob and wondered how many of his friends and associates were down there, screaming for Chinese blood. Botello brought his axe down onto the Cornell roof. Yoheng imagined the people huddled inside, listening to the roar of the crowd and watching as the axe blade chopped through their ceiling. After a few blows, another man ran up and stuck his rifle through the hole Patello had made. There were a few muffled shots, followed by the sound of a child crying and a woman's scream. At the same moment, a group of men clambered up onto the covered walkway, carrying a huge stone like a battering ram. They paused for a moment, marshaling their strength, then slammed the stone into one of the doors It gave on the third blow, and the mob rushed forward, sweeping over the walkway in a thick, dark crush, as each man fought to be the first into the building. Down in the alley, Mayor Aguilar wheeled around on his pale horse. Come on, boys. Sheriff, it's too late. There's nothing we can do here. The four of them spurred their mounts and galloped off to the north, leaving Chinatown and the mob in the dust of their wake. Yo-Hing drew back from the edge of the roof. He had seen enough to know that the mob was going to loot Chinatown for all it was worth. If he wanted to secure his assets, he'd have to move fast. On the southeastern side of the row house, some coaches and wagons had been drawn up to form a crude barrier across Aliso Street. Perhaps some of the mob were concerned that the soldiers from the nearby drum barracks might try and intervene. Yo-Hing nearly laughed out loud at the thought of American soldiers defending Chinamen. He grabbed the edge of the row house roof Lowered himself until he was hanging full length, and then dropped down onto the top of the nearest carriage. The mob was busy dragging wounded Chinamen out of the Cornell building, so nobody saw Yo Heng as he crept cat like across the top of the barricade and up onto the roof of his Hong Chow headquarters. Unusually for Los Angeles, this roof was peaked. But Joheng's feet were sure. He was just beginning to prise open one of the skylights when a noise from the street caught his attention. Joheng knew he didn't have much time. He had to secure certain documents, contracts, letters of credit, and a sizable cache of banknotes before the mob found its way into the building. He redoubled his efforts working his boot knife under the window trim and peeling it slowly back from the frame. The noise came again. It was a strangled cry that sounded strangely familiar. And after a moment, Joheng's curiosity went out. He sheathed his knife, drew his revolver, and crawled to the rooftop's sloping edge. On the corner of Los Angeles Street and Commercial Street, three nooses had been slung over the heavy beam that crowned the south-facing storefront. In the flickering torchlight, they seemed to wriggle like hungry snakes, casting their long, thin shadows across the embossed sign that read John Goller, purveyor of fine carriages. A group of heavily armed men, some thirty strong, had surrounded three Chinese men and were now dragging them towards the makeshift gallows. Or trying to, at least. The first victim was an old man, the second a boy of about fourteen. They were both looking around with the same nonplussed expression, as though they didn't understand what was going on. Yohing felt an unfamiliar sensation and realized after a moment it was pity. These fellows were simple peasants, fresh off the boat by the look of them. In all likelihood, they really didn't understand what was happening because they had never seen a noose before. The third man was a different story. Surrounded and outnumbered, he laid about himself with the savagery of one who knows there is no chance of escape. As Yoheng watched, he kicked one Gwaila in the crotch and slammed his elbow into another one's jaw, knocking him to the ground. The man was yelling a stream of insults, curses, and ribald jokes at the top of his lungs, his voice muffled from time to time as one or another of his assailants laid hold of him. That was the sound that Yohing had heard. And it was no wonder that it seemed familiar. He knew the man. It was Tong Wan. A big hairy Gwala seized Tong Wan from behind, wrapping his forearm around the Urhu player's neck. Tong Wan twisted, kicking out as another man approached him with a knife and managed to free himself just enough to get his mouth inside the arm that was strangling him. He bit down hard. The strangler shrieked and stumbled backward, but four men pressed in, pummeling Tong Wan with rifle butts and stabbing him with knives. He spit and snarled, snatching at their weapons, but they soon managed to subdue him laying hold of his arms and legs and dragging him bodily towards the waiting noose. All of a sudden, the window above the gallows opened with a bang, and the shop's owner, John Goller, stuck his head out into the street. He had on a nightcap, and his light gray beard caught the torchlight, which lent it the hue of a guttering flame. "'What in tarnation is going on out here?' he demanded. A few of the men in the street laughed. "'What does it look like? We're hanging some Chinamen,' called one. Another gave a hoot and crowed, "'Patronize home trade!' Gala looked down to where the two befuddled victims were standing with nooses already tight around their necks. Then he saw Tong Wan, still cursing and struggling despite the multiple stab wounds that bloomed red against the pale cotton of his jacket. Goller's mouth dropped open. You savages, he screamed. You goddamned savages. You think you can do murder in front of my shop? with my little children here upstairs, crying from the terror of your god-awful racket? I won't have it. You release those men at once, or I'll have the law on you. God damn it! This is my property, and I command you to... But yo never got to hear what John Goller's command was, because at that moment, a volley of gunfire erupted in the street, shattering Galler's windowpane and knocking a handful of shingles loose from the side of his house. The wagon maker leapt back from the window with a shriek and did not show his face again. Down below, the men had finally succeeded in getting the remaining noose around Tong Wan's neck. Ready, boys, called one of them in a loud, gleeful voice, and heave. The ropes jerked tight and the three Chinese men were lifted off the ground so that their struggling forms cast grisly shadows on the torch-lit storefront. This was not the quick neck-snapping jolt with which executed criminals met their end. It was a slow, agonizing suffocation. Yohing watched as the old man's face turned from brown to black, to blue, and the teenage boy's eyes rolled wildly in their sockets. Tongman was still fighting. He had somehow managed to get his hands between the rope and his throat, and now he swung wildly, kicking with desperate force at any guala who dared to come within range. One man stepped forward, hefting a meat cleaver over his head but Tong Wan's foot slammed into his face and he fell to the ground in a shower of broken teeth. Everyone was shooting now. Yo saw a bullet tear the flesh loose from one of Tong Wan's ribs and another slam into his elbow, shattering the bone. The noose had crushed the Urhu player's voice box and broken his hands, which once had been so deft in coaxing melodies from horsehair and rosewood, from string and from bow. Now the bullets were tearing his body apart, and still Tong Wan fought on. Yo Hing flattened himself against the roof and held his pistol in both hands. He took careful aim right at the place where Tong Wan's head would be when he swung forward for one last kick at the screaming mob. If it comes to that, thought Yoheng, here's hoping someone does the same for me. Then Tong Wan swung forward into the light and Yoheng pulled the trigger. Dr. Jin Tong frowned and rooted once more through the jumble of scrolls in his heavy traveling case. I know it's in here somewhere, he said. I just can't find it right now. His wife, Tong Yo put her hand on his shoulder. Despite the march of time and their many years in exile, her hand was still smooth and his shoulder was still strong. Don't worry about it, she said with a smile. I think I can remember it. By heart? He looked up at her in mock surprise, then stood up and carefully closed the case. Those scrolls, books of poetry mostly, were one of their two remaining links with their homeland, their youth, and the world which they had loved and lost in the ravages of politics and Western imperialism. The other link was memory. Tong took her husband's hand and the two of them walked slowly over to the simple wooden benches on either side of their small reading table. The light of their oil lamp was soft and seemed to lift away the years so that Dr. Tong was once again gazing at the striking bright-eyed girl who had stolen his heart with her quick wits and mischievous smile. Tong Yao looked back at him and saw once more the sweet-faced young man she had met so long ago with the qi buzzing around his gentle, healing hands and his little half-smile full of hope and curiosity. All right, he said. Her husband. Her qin. Let's hear it by heart. Yo closed her eyes. Then, after a moment, she began to speak. Away to the north march the tall green mountains, and the sea foam laps the western edge of town. This is where we part, dear friend. This is where you leave me and drift away like a tumbleweed over the numberless miles, light and free, As floating clouds, you vanish like a dream. And I return, like the setting sun, remembering. Remember me. Goodbye, dear friend, for the last time. Goodbye. The horses are restless to carry us away tong yo stopped speaking, and the silence swelled, with a rumble that moved from the floor up through the tongs' entire bodies before reaching their ears. "'What is that?' Jin wondered aloud. The sound grew and swelled like the floodwaters, sweeping through a valley in the spring. Closer and closer it came— Until it was so loud that the house itself seemed to shake with fury. Then the door burst open. Before they had time to think, the Tongs found themselves seized and roughly hustled out into the street. There were angry faces everywhere rough, bearded faces which danced in the torchlight and seemed to glow red like demons. What's going on? asked Dr. Tong in English, but nobody heard him. They were all shouting, waving guns in the air, and shoving the Tongs further and further from their own front door. Let us go! Dr. Tong was shouting now as well. What is this all about? Dan Moody! he called out to a short, stout man standing nearby. Tong Yo realized... The man must be one of the Gwala patients from her husband's practice. Dan Moody, can you please tell me what's going on? Dan Moody looked at the Tongs without appearing to see them, as if he had never spoken to them, as if they had never existed. Someone grabbed hold of Tongyo's arm. She looked around and saw a thin Mexican man with a grim expression. She recognized him. Adolfo Salas, a policeman whom Jin had treated for several injuries. Salas pulled Tongyo away from her husband, shoving at the men who were closest to her. Stop it! Stop it! he shouted. You can't take the old lady. In the name of the law! He held up his pistol and cocked it, the men were passing a noose hand to hand from the back of the crowd. Slowly, inexorably, it wound its way over the jing and coiled around his neck. Tong Yo screamed. It was a scream of rage and a scream of pain, of frustration and heartbreak and a terrible longing for what had been, for what was. And for what would never be again. She broke free of Salis and plunged into the crowd shoving the Gwaila out of her way until she was face to face with Jin. His hands were tied so she reached out and pulled his face close to hers staring into his eyes with all the intensity of a human life. Like the setting sun said the eyes of Tongyo. Remember me said the eyes of Tong Jing. Then the policeman caught hold of her and dragged her back as the crowd marched her husband away down the street. Their torches were swallowed by the darkness. Henry Hazard, attorney at law, leaned against the wall and vomited. He was not drunk. Somewhere, a fire was burning. Hazard could smell the smoke as he straightened up, wiping his mouth on his sleeve and his eyes on the back of his hand. This was madness. The sheer horror of it was beyond belief, and yet somehow the whole thing seemed almost inevitable, like water flowing downhill. Samuel's gold, the killing of Robert Thompson, and now this. Without meaning to, Hazard glanced up again at the hanged men whom he had stumbled upon in the dark. Now the moon had emerged from behind a drifting cloud. It shone down on the bodies, making their blood gleam silver as they swayed in the breeze. There was a voice behind him and Hazard wheeled around in panic. A single torch was coming toward him, bobbing swiftly down the alley to the accompaniment of several loud voices. Hazard felt an unaccountable urge to run and hide, even though he wasn't afraid of being murdered himself. Then the party was upon him, and Hazard realized with a jolt that he knew the man holding the torch. Ramon Dominguez, he shouted, causing the man to stop and look around in confusion. Hazard ran forward to greet him, What are you doing here? The people here tonight have gone mad. They're murdering every Chinaman they can catch, no matter whether he's innocent or... Hazard caught sight of the young man with his hands tied and a noose around his neck. He took a step back, his eyes darting between his friend and the prisoner. Ramon, he said quietly, what are you doing? Dominguez cleared his throat. He had on a bowler hat, which combined with an impressive handlebar mustache to cover most of his face. We're just taking this Chinaman to jail, he said doubtfully. With a noose around his neck? Hazard stepped forward into the torchlight. He could now see that there were six men in the posse, most of them armed with hunting rifles. How do you know this man is guilty? Hazard asked. He started off facing Ramon. But as he spoke, he turned to make eye contact with each of the rioters. Part of him was screaming in terror and disgust. But another part was sizing up his audience with a cool, lawyerly dispassion. It's not so bad, he thought. Half a jury... This man may be a heathen, said Hazard, gesturing towards the prisoner. But you men are Christians, heirs to the gospel of brotherly love. We ain't brothers with Chinamen, one of the rioters snapped. Brothers or not, I think you're man enough to know right from wrong. Look at these men. Hazard seized the torch from Dominguez and stepped back, casting its light over the grisly spectacle of the three hanged men behind him. Is each of them guilty of killing Robert Thompson? What about the others you passed when you came around that corner, or the ones lying shot to pieces in front of the coronel? No. The Lord told Abraham he would spare Sodom if within its walls Ten innocents could be found. Tonight, we have ransacked our own city and slain well more than ten innocents for the sake of one. Have you forgotten the meaning of justice? All Chinamen are guilty of something, said Dominguez, but his voice faltered and he did not meet Hazard's eye. No, said Hazard. Not all. Not that man. He pointed to the prisoner, who stood like a statue, his eyes burning in the torchlight. If you took that man to be hanged, said Hazard, you would be taking him to be murdered. The rioters looked at each other in silence. Then they scattered, and Hazard stood with the torch still lifted overhead, face to face with the prisoner. The man twisted his hands, gradually working them free of their clumsily knotted binding. Then he reached up and removed the noose from around his neck. He held it for a moment, then tossed it into the dust at Hazard's feet. The two men looked at each other. Neither of them spoke, but Hazard thought he saw something in the other's eyes. Something besides the haunted look of a man who had just narrowly escaped death by violence. Something almost like a smile. Then the man turned and was off, running swiftly down the alley in the direction that led away from Chinatown and towards something, anything else. For a moment, Hazard watched him, his dark braids swinging and his light cotton jacket glowing beneath the moon. Then he turned a corner and was gone.
0: For those of you who have been with us from the beginning, thank you so much for taking this journey with us. It is our sincere hope that you connected with these characters and learned something new. If you have ideas about how to continue giving this story life, please reach out to us on Facebook at Blood on Gold Mountain. If you enjoyed our soundtrack and need music for your podcast or other media project, we will be happy to connect you with our artistic director, Micah Huang. And most importantly, we need your help to continue telling this story. We invite you to share Blood on Gold Mountain with your friends, family, and students. As always, we would love to hear your thoughts in a review and please stay in touch via Instagram and Facebook at Blood on Gold Mountain. Blood on Gold Mountain is brought to you by the Holmes Performing Arts Fund of the Claremont Colleges, the Pacific Basin Institute of Pomona College, the Public Events Office at Scripps College, the Scripps College Music Department, the Entrepreneurial Musicianship Department at the New England Conservatory, and our Patreon patrons. It is written and produced by Micah Huang, narrated by Hao Huang, and hosted by Emma Guise, featuring original music by Micah Huang and the Flower Pistols. A special thanks to Hao Huang and Rochelle Huang for their musical contributions, Kusuma Saputro for the amazing artwork, Sheila Kalliser for her critical PR guidance, Rochelle Huang for her editing prowess, and Ivo Terra from Simpler Media Productions for his immense expertise and support. Thanks for listening!